my life I has to fight. All's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah, Nazareth. I'm fed up, homie. You fed up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. I'm gonna be the one who's gonna be like, oh, so <laughs> well, there we are. Like, I mean, it, it happened. It's happening. <laughs> We're in it right it's now. Happening. Yes. So let's yeah. start off. Welcome everyone back to. I call this podcast "What More Can I Say," but I'm open to changing the name. I was listening I like to a lot name. of Jay Z that day, and I don't know if you know <laughs> from that album. Yeah, <laughs> I love that song actually. <laughs> Okay, so um, this time we are talking about early elementary education. We have two educators here that are veterans. Early childhood education, which is what did I say? Elementary. Thank you. Early childhood education, and I have two veteran educators who are um, women of color that want to share about their experience and and just talk about how early childhood education is doing in the world right now with everything that's going on. So first off, we have, can you please introduce yourselves? I'm Kendra. I am, I identify as a Black woman with a Black husband and a Black son. So it's um, very much who I am and merging those two things with early childhood education, you know, became very important in the last few years of my life. Mm -hmm. And I am Rochelle. I identify as a uh, multiracial Black woman. Uh, I am a mom of two kids, and I have been in early education, uh, gosh, let me do math, uh, ooh, like 23 years. Wow. <laughs> That's dope. Um, Kendra and Rochelle, how are you all doing right now? I really never know how to answer that question in the midst of like the world right now. So I will usually just say I'm okay. Yeah. Um, same here. It's kind of, um, you know, even when I feel like I'm doing well, it's all relative for uh, <laughs> this exactly. pandemic we're living in. Um, so yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay is better than bad, right? Yeah. And, I'm, you know, I don't want to say things could be worse because then they will get worse. But, yeah. yeah. It, don't tempt I'm okay. me. <laughs> yeah. And, and making space for the fact that for a lot of people, things are not okay right now. So it's okay mm -hmm. to just be okay. Um, and I appreciate your honesty in saying you're okay. Let's start by talking about what is early childhood education? I think a lot of people out there don't understand what the difference is, and I think it'd be helpful for us to first establish that. Um, well, early childhood education is really, uh, you know, the the learning that takes place uh, from birth to about the age of eight. Um, but most commonly, when we think about early childhood programs, we're thinking about our infants and our toddlers and our preschool age children. Okay. So that would be from birth to about five years old or so? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. And how is that different from K-12? Okay. I was going to say for me, um, early childhood education is like the foundation of everything else. You start between those ages of zero to five and you're getting everything from learning how to be your own person, learning how to express your emotions, learning how to, you know, be coexistent with other people. So it's not, it's different because I feel like we lose a little of that or a lot of that when you get into the actual um, K through 12 type of schooling. Yeah, I think Kendra is exactly right. I think one of the, uh, one of the dope things about early learning is that it's um, one of the few spaces where we pretty much still teach children in the ways that they learn best. So we know that young children uh, learn best through play and that doesn't stop at the age of six or the age of seven. You know, children learn through experiences and being hands-on and constructing their own knowledge and, you know, putting the pieces together with what they already know and figuring stuff out. And, um, that is still how we teach our youngest learners in most cases <laughs> in like a center environment, but that's not so much how we teach children in elementary school anymore, which in my opinion is a big problem, but is also one of the things that makes that early learning space um, pretty sacred and special to me. I think one of the things that's interesting about early childhood education is that it's not mandatory the way K through 12 is, you know, by law, once kids get to kindergarten age, they have to go to school or there has to be evidence of some curriculum being taught, right? Um, And we know that with early childhood education, it is not required. Um, But I know that our current administration, without necessarily getting too political, um, they're trying to put a few things in place to make it universal so that it is a baseline just like kindergarten would be. So instead of kids starting at kindergarten, they would start at pre-K so that they have those social emotional behaviors that you're talking about already at least starting to develop that self-advocacy that you're talking about because so often children come into kindergarten without that and it unfortunately, sets them behind. Yeah, I um, agree. You know, I think I think it's probably not mandatory for a few different reasons. Um, one, I think a lot of people don't see it as education. Hmm. And so they don't see it as a necessity like K through 12. And then there's the other side where, you know, you want to stay with your baby as long as you can. So there, I think it's a two-sided coin on that one. Yeah, you know, even, um, I mean, I think one thing that really blocks a conversation about if, if early learning should be mandatory is the fact that we don't have a public investment in early learning in a meaningful way. You know, our we can say that, you know, all kids like six and up or whatever need to go to school uh, because we provide public schools for them to go to, but we don't have um, a comparable system in the early childhood space. And, you know, I also don't know, you know, I think taking children to, to childcare usually begins out of necessity, right? Like that's a situation where families have to go back to work at some point. You need somewhere um, safe and responsive to leave your child. 
And, you know, and then I think there are other situations where we see like um, people who are stay at home parents or whatever, who like will wait until a child is like three or four and then do um, more of a like preschool type situation intentionally for like learning or socialization. And so that's kind of a more of a like an optional situation and doesn't need to be full time, five days a week, eight hours a day. Whereas, you know, <laughs> childcare has become such a necessity in our, in our country, just based on the way that we live these days that, um, people need two incomes, people need two incomes and, um, you especially need two incomes. Um, I mean, it's, it's like a, a really vicious cycle because, um, childcare is so expensive. So expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some cases, you know, most of one of those incomes, um, might be just paying for the cost of care. Still have to work. Um, so there's so many angles to it, you know, uh, privilege and economics and yeah. um, all of these things. Can you tell me the difference between daycare and preschool? So preschool would be more curriculum, schedules, structure type of, you know, situation, whereas daycare would be more like, you know, you guys get to play and kind of do what you want all day and you're here until your parents pick you up. Not a bad thing, just different. Yeah. So there's a certain level or what I think I'm hearing is that there's a certain level of intentionality and training that you have to have in order to facilitate a preschool type space yeah. so that students are hitting or are you are you measuring growth and mo- monitoring like their their progress with certain things in preschools? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, even in the preschool space and, and younger toddlers, infants, you're you're paying attention to development you're tracking milestones you're paying attention to how children are developing skills all of those sorts of things um, so that you can then plan learning experiences that um, you know support them in their learning journey and you know where they're headed developmentally next mm-hmm. interesting okay then um since you clarified the difference between daycare and preschool why is it important for everyone to have a very intentional early education, not just a daycare? You know, I don't know that it is necessarily. I think what is most important in a child's early years is that they are in environments where they are cared for in a responsive way um, by a safe adult who cares about them and interacts with them. Because in a high quality program, that's really what you're looking for, right? You're looking for the caregiver to be attuned to what children's needs are and to respond quickly and be engaged. Um, And, you know, you're looking for, you know, someone who cares and whose heart is in it and who wants to talk to your child and play with them and ask them questions and answer their questions and all those sorts of things. So that can be a preschool teacher, that can be a Nana, that can be a babysitter, that can be a neighbor, you know, that can, it doesn't have to be preschool. And I mean, the other thing that we know about early learning is that when experiences aren't high quality, they can have a negative impact, right? So, not all care is equal. Not all experiences are equal. Um, if a child is in is in a preschool where they are ignored or demeaned or yelled at or um, experiencing racism or sexism, you know that's going to have a negative 
impact on their growth and development. So whether it's preschool or daycare or um, an in-home situation or staying home with, with their parent, it's, it's really like the quality of the relationships and um, kind of what uh, experiences a child is being exposed to that really matter. Um, but in this day and age where most families have to have both parents working, if they're both parents in that family, less and less are parents able to be the ones that give their kiddos those experiences full time. Um, and that's why we see uh, so many children in childcare. Let's talk about that, kind of the inequities around access to the the kind of care you're describing, right? Because both of you mentioned, both Kendra and Rochelle said, you know, it's it's expensive. And you essentially, even with two incomes, it can be a, a huge financial hit to get the kind of preschool that most people would want to put their kids in, one that you said has the curriculum and the engagement and the socialization, right? All of these really, really intentional things that any parent would want for their child, but most parents in uh, urban environments, especially with very expensive rent and cost of living, you know, it's hard to afford that. Can you talk about some of the inequities that you all see with that in in preschool? I mean, I am living proof. Had I not gotten a discount because I worked at the company, I wouldn't have been able to afford putting Linux into a childcare center. It's 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 expensive. Yeah, and it's, you know, there are there are things like, um, you know, subsidy programs and whatnot uh, to help support uh, lower income families getting their children in. But, um, you know, I've directed a high subsidy center and the amount that, <laughs> that the state pitches Helps in with. or pays, you know, it's not a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's one of those situations, mm-hmm. too, where like maybe, you know, you're you're on ERDC um, based on what your income is. And then you get a promotion at work, which should be good for you. That should be good for your career. That should be good for your family. But now you don't qualify for your subsidy anymore. You're on the hook for 100% of your child care. You got a promotion, but you didn't get that much of a promotion, you know? Right. So then what do you do? Um, how do you go to work? Do you have to find a new program for your child to be in? Like, it's such a, um, it's just not set up. Um, properly properly yeah to work or for anyone like most things i feel in the u.s the system is just not it it wasn't made right and it needs to it needs a do-over you know i think that is so common with a lot of public assistance programs right i was just Mm -hmm. talking with someone else about um i mean this is not the same obviously because we're talking about early childhood education right here right now but i was talking with them about housing programs And um, right now we're in the middle of the great resignation where people are experiencing a lot of abuse, um, either from their employers or from the people they're serving or sometimes both. And, you know, when you make such little money and the cost of living is so high, it's like, why am I putting up with this? I could just not have a job and at least get more assistance, right? And, And be able to maintain a more livable quality of life because so many people right now are busting their butts to make just above minimum wage which like doesn't qualify them for all of the assistance programs that they would want to right you know it's receive like, oh, you're from. not poor enough sorry exactly just a little too 
wealthy, if that's what you could even call it, but it's not right. really. I mean, if you look at, at how much the the baseline is, it is really, really low. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Um, again, it's kind of just goes back to, like you said, a lot of public, you just said it, Maria. Assistance. Assistance. Thank you. <laughs> um, it, it just, the systems don't work properly and early childhood education is no different, mm -hmm. unfortunately. You know, even with the programs, it, it takes a long time to even be able to talk to someone to see if you qualify for the program. So you can have this interview coming up, but you don't have childcare and they're not calling you for another couple of weeks. So it's really just this cycle. So let me ask you, because um, as you all mentioned, equity and access to care, is a big part of privilege. And one of the other things I've noticed as a classroom teacher is that uh, the resources around COVID have not equally been distributed. And I'm curious what, how COVID has impacted early childhood environments. What, what does it even look like to work in an early childhood environment in the middle of a pandemic? To work in one, oh, it's a roller coaster. It, so I actually took the director position like right at the beginning of the pandemic. I got hired in February. We closed in March because of COVID. And then um, we reopened in May. So I only got the experience of directing through COVID. So you already have this extremely taxing job. And then you have to put COVID on top of it. And it's just almost unbearable um, mm. having yeah. to to uh, talk to families and, and make sure that they're okay and convince them that, you know, it is okay for their child to be at school right now. We're taking precautions and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other hand, there are things where, you know, I'm in meetings and I'm like, I don't agree with what's happening at all right now. So do I do it myself at my own center or do I have to go along with the company because it's, you know, a corporation working at a center through COVID very, very hard. Yeah. I um, was not working at a center during COVID. Um, I work in curriculum now, but you know, one of the things that we found is that, um, I mean, there are so many programs that didn't survive the pandemic. Um, that closed their doors and never opened again. Um, and then, you know, we were talking about the great resignation. I mean, that's showing up in um, early learning as well and the teacher shortages. So, you know, if you were able to survive the pandemic um, and maintain your business at this point, it's, you know, trying to stay staffed enough um, right. to be open to care for families. And now with Omnicron, I mean, the, um, you know, it's just like one thing after another. And, you know, again, like the challenge of keeping your doors open due to staffing, but not because people aren't coming to work necessarily, but because they're in quarantine um, because they're sick or someone right. in their family is sick. Like, it's just it's really hard right now. And if you're, if you're one of those small providers and you don't have um, kind of the economy of scale that you can rely on as part of a fleet, you know, it's, it's pretty harrowing from what I hear. And it's also hard because COVID has been changing so rapidly 
that you have to keep changing with it with protocols and cleanings and you know how long you're quarantined and who can come and who can't like it's just an ever-changing situation and you just it's exhausting but you don't have another choice how are the children dealing with that you know um again i'm not in a center right now um but i i hear from our centers often um and it sounds a lot like our little ones are um faring kind of similarly to our older kids i think everybody is struggling right now everyone's having um, that pandemic um not, I don't want to say hangover, but you know, it's it's been here for so long. Everyone has that pandemic exhaustion. Yeah, yeah, pandemic fatigue. Fatigue, yeah. I yeah, think, even yeah. even the little children. Mm-hmm. And I mm. think you know, I think a lot of it has to do with how the grownups are doing. Um, mm-hmm. They really absorb our energy and are attuned to our stress and anxiety. And I think a lot of how individual children are doing has a lot to do with how the grownups around them are doing. Um, and I think that shows up at school as well. And, you know, I know my, my kid's teacher has seen some stuff that I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, we weren't seeing that before. You know, we're two years in and my youngest is four. So I don't know, maybe we would be seeing it anyway. But, you know, you don't really know. Is this is this a result of all this weird pandemic stuff or is this just developmental who can say? Um, There's really no telling. Know, definitely know my third grader is having a hard time too. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's endemic right now. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've observed is just that I think a lot of people in education keep fantasizing about this, like going back to normal, like, oh, well, when the pandemic ends, we can do it like this again. And I know, at least for me, I don't ever anticipate creating a space that will look like the one that did before the pandemic, right? Because these children are going to be impacted for, this is a whole generation that's impacted, you know? And so the way we teach them, the way we interact with them, the way they interact with each other, it's going to have to shift permanently, you know? And I just, I'm, I'm so hopeful that the educational system is not so rigid, you know, they can't be so rigid that they just want to hold on to these norms that are like from years and years ago that are were outdated to begin with right oh maria come on what you know people don't like change (laughs) and and if it's if it's rooted and the foundation is white supremacy then they're definitely not going to change Hmm. don't do that you know no you know better Okay, I want to hear more about this. Tell me, tell me more. You know, I early on in the pandemic, um, I was really hopeful that we would see this as an opportunity to do things differently and to uh, adjust, correct, repair some of the things that have been broken for a really long time. But then you remembered where you lived. <laughs> then I, well, and then I saw how my fellow Americans act when stuff hits the fan, and it's not mm-hmm. like grown-ups with a sense of uh, collective <laughs> good or agency. It was it was wild. So you know, I mean, like you know, class sizes have been too large 
for a long time. So what better time than a global pandemic with a super contagious ass virus <laughs> to make class sizes smaller? But we didn't do that, nope. did we? No. Nope. I mean, it was logical. It like only makes sense. But no, we're just going to keep trying to do things the same old way as though we're in the same circumstances when those things didn't work right in the first place. Right. So, that you know, part. <laughs> um, if we if if we were better just as a <laughs> as a culture, as a nation, um, you know, we would have exercised some innovation and some ingenuity. And uh, you know, I keep thinking about like that World War II generation, that greatest generation, and they would be like so ashamed of <laughs> how people are responding to this, I think. You know, like stay home and wear a mask. What's your problem? It's really um, not that big a deal. <laughs> it is not that big of a deal. Um, but here we are, you know, two years later, you know, we haven't fixed anything. I mean, I'm I'm in Portland, Oregon, and the ventilation in our schools sucks. The windows in our schools don't open. Uh, the filters and those HEPA filters that were going to save us all last spring have not been changed. Um, and they say that schools are the safest place to be while they can't keep the schools open because there are not enough healthy people to work in them. It's so crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, there went my optimism. Mm. But it was a nice dream. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For just a little while. Mm -hmm. Kendra, I want to go back to what you were saying. You were saying, um, thank you for sharing, Rochelle. Kendra, you were saying that white supremacy, I, I'm, I'm not quoting directly, but you, you said white supremacy kind of benefits from the way things are right now, which is why they won't change it. I, I think that's something similar to what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that is just as society as a whole in early childhood education just falls in that umbrella. Why change a system that has been working so well for white people. Why? Because we think it sucks. What power do we have? That's a great question. What power do we have? Exactly. So that's, I think. No, I'm asking you, like, what power? No, no, do no, we no, no, I know. I, oh, no, I know. I'm just saying. So that, that is one of the things that I think about when I think we need to start teaching early mm. these type of things, mm. because if, if we don't teach it early, they're going to go through their lives, have these, um, core beliefs already in place mm. and nothing's going to change and it's going to be the same cycle over and over and over again. So if we don't start it sooner than later, I always say if my son is young enough or old enough, I guess, if he's old enough to experience racism, then your white children are old enough to learn about it. Absolutely. I we keep um I feel like there's kind of a string of inequity that is showing up in a lot of the things that we're talking about, a lot of inequities that exist either between early childhood education and K-12 education, um, inequities of families that have a lot of access to resources and can be really picky about uh, the programs they select versus families that are just struggling to find some place to send their child so that they can go to work, right, a safe space. Um, and so I'm hearing a lot about inequities. And one of the other things that I notice is that I never hear anything about early childhood education in the news. I was trying to like 
find a story that I could bring to you both and we could tease it apart and talk about it together. And I was having a hard time finding that. Why do you think early childhood education is not discussed in mainstream media or covered the way other aspects of education are? I think it's some of it is a lot of people see it as like a bottom of the barrel type job. Hmm. And, you know, why, why do we need to talk about these people? All they're doing is babysitting children. Like that's nothing. I think it's, you know, if we talk about early childhood education, we have to talk about the educators. We have to talk about the predominantly black and brown women who are not making a living wage, even as families are spending what amounts to a year's college tuition at a public university uh, for care for their infant. Um, If we talk about early childhood education, we have to talk about who's in the workforce, who isn't, what's, what the constraints are on women's careers, uh, the, the multiple levels and degrees of labor that uh, mothers take on both in the home and at work. So, you know, I, I think that it really <laughs> largely um, is a, a question of um, keeping women oppressed because to talk honestly about early care and education is to talk about uh, women's issues holistically from employment to education to childcare to, um, you know, kind of all of the things. And And you, who want to talk about that, especially for black and women of color, like gross. Yeah. We don't want to talk about that. We want to keep, (laughs) they want to keep us doing all of the things and um, in, in the scarcity mode. Right. And too tired. Um and too spent to put our energies together um, and work on, you know, a systemic change. And that is happening here and there. Right. But, you know, they don't, they don't want us to organize. They don't want us to actually figure this out. You bring up a really interesting point, Rochelle, which is that the experience of early childhood education, it's a very different experience or maybe it's not, I, I don't know. And I'm wondering if you both can talk about what your experience is as women of color working in childhood education. What has your experience been? Well, it's really, I mean, kind of fortunately and unfortunately, um, it's it's really an entry-level job in a lot of places and a lot of respects. I mean, when I say that I've been in this field for 23 years. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm only 40 and I started doing this when I was 16 or 17. Um, it was something that I could do after school. I wasn't a lead teacher, but I was an assistant teacher and, um, you know, I did it full time in the summers and then I did it on college breaks. And then I graduated into, uh, <laughs> a Bush recession and was where I was able to get work and it has, has stayed my field. And, you know, over the years, I've worked with, you know, some with white women who had elementary ed degrees. I've worked with um, brown immigrant women who were educators in their home countries, but um, couldn't teach here um, in the elementary or high school space. The, you know, but they could teach in the early childhood space because um, the field's unprofessionalized um, and they do that intentionally. 
and it's really it's really a messed up thing because um, the way that we value people and their expertise in in our society is like through their credentials or their degrees or whatever, right? Um, but we have a lot of caregivers who um, just are super gifted based on their innate skills and their experience don't reward that skill with pay, with compensation, with uh, up-leveling in their career because... It, it doesn't come with a degree attached to it, right? But at the same time, it doesn't pay to get a degree in early childhood. I finally did get my master's in early childhood because I was pregnant with my first child and I wanted to be able to stay home with him when he was a baby. But, you know, prior to that, my mom had been bugging me about it. And I was like, why would I get a master's in early childhood education? I make $13 an hour. <laughs> like, I'm not going to be able to pay that loan off. Like, why would I do this? So, you know, it's, it's, super important work that is underpaid and is largely done by black and brown women. And, you know, there's always been real strong, like plantation vibes for me too, you know, like having white folks yes. kids off with me um, yes. to babysit after school or on the weekends, like in a lot of ways, feeling like part of the family, but then also knowing that you're the help. And, you're not. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's all of those sorts of, there's so many weird, you know, kind of just, uh, uh race and class things that um, go into being in being in the profession and the way that you're seen and the way that you're treated. Um, of course, there are also, you know, <laughs> early childhood teachers who are white, you know, they are also certainly caught in like an economic messed up <laughs> space thing. Um, you know, the people that I've seen like be, be the most successful are uh, women whose husbands made enough money that um, they could just do the work because they enjoyed it. <laughs> but uh, the rest of us, you know, are out here like struggling to make the ends meet and, um, you know, take care of our families while we are caring for other people's children as though they are our own. You definitely do not do early childhood education for the money because it's just not there. It's not there. Thank you for sharing, Michelle. Kendra, what has your experience been in the early childhood education setting? Um, I think I really didn't, and this is going to sound weird, but my Blackness didn't really come into account until I got into management. And... There's probably something there. There's probably something to that. I don't know, Rochelle, you might have more insight than I do on that one. But once I made a personal choice of not suppressing my Blackness for the comfort of white people anymore, things just went haywire. And it was my experience as a Black woman in early childhood education just went to like down the toilet <laughs> it was crazy and it happened pretty fast mm -hmm. i hate to hear that the experience black women have across the board in educational settings is so abusive and so traumatic because i just recently spoke with another educator who ended up leaving the classroom she worked in elementary i'm sure you have heard part of the interview i did with dr ray dell Mm -hmm. And she was, she was talking about having a, um, you know, being herself was very threatening for a lot of people in those spaces. 
And um, when people, I think, and I, I would love to hear more, but uh, when people say being their authentic black selves, that doesn't necessarily mean they're showing up with a Black Panther flag. They are just Hours. okay. But what I'm going to say is, but even if you did, that's okay. Right. It, right. Um, Who cares? Um, I think that one of the things people don't understand is that like being your black self means not leaving certain parts of the conversation out or leaving certain opinions out of the conversation, right? When you make decisions, what a lot of people don't realize is that you are making that decision with the lens of whoever you are ethnically, culturally, right? Um, and so to say that you previously felt the need to leave that out meant that you were essentially trying to make decisions as if you were a white woman or making decisions that you knew would please white people. And when you decided not to do that anymore, you were actually just making decisions based on how you see things. And they were like, oh, no, that is not where we're doing. They did not like that. And I, you know, honestly, it wasn't even, like you said, like no one's coming up here with like the whole slew of other people wearing all black and guns or anything, like literally just showing up being yourself, you know? And you would think that being yourself would just be fine. But for some reason, like you said, it's threatening. And it's things that... I wouldn't dream of being threatened by like you just speaking your opinion. Okay. That's your opinion. I don't need to be threatened by that. And it's just simple things like that. It, that after a while, it, it just, it's exhausting. Let me ask you this. This might be a controversial question, but I got to ask you, I got to ask you, do you think colorism plays a role in educational settings? I think colorism plays a role in every setting. It is literally a part of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course it does. Mm -hmm. It took me, and I, I actually posted that on Facebook probably some months ago. Like, it took me a really long time to be okay with being dark-skinned. Mm. Because it's like, I'm a black woman, which is already a double negative. But a dark-skinned black woman, I have no voice. So absolutely colorism plays a part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think people might have felt more threatened by your opinion, because you are a dark-skinned Black woman? Yeah, I'm the big bad wolf. Hmm. And all I'm doing is being myself. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed, and Rochelle, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm just trying to have an authentic conversation. But um, I've noticed that when I speak to a lot of lighter-skinned Black teachers or lighter-skinned teachers of color, their experiences are not as traumatic as the the teachers or the educators that are so visibly people of color, right? So um, for those who might be listening, I am a dark-skinned black woman. Kendra is a dark-skinned black woman. Um, Rochelle, I don't know if you would identify as maybe- <laughs> Dark-skinned black woman. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Cafe Olay. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I mean, that, that impacts the way people treat us in these spaces and the experiences that we have, right? And the, and the opinions they're willing to hear from us. 100%. I hate that. But it's it's something that I had to bring up. I'm curious how your experience has either blocked you or pushed you from making the changes that you want to see in the early childhood educational setting. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Say it again. 
Sorry. You know what? I'm, I'm going to say I'm still learning how to interview multiple people at one time. I've never interviewed two people at the same time, which is why I'm just like asking a question. And then you're like, okay, who are you talking to? <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> Thank you for being like giving me grace with that because you're like, uh... no, you're totally fine. I um, usually will look to Rochelle anyways because I think she's smarter. So no, <laughs> yeah. I told her she didn't need me. Also, by the way, <laughs> like you, have you do not need me there, but. I'm happy to I have you. I needed a, vir- a virtual handhold. Yeah. <laughs> but my question was, and we'll start with Kendra, how has your experience blocked you or pushed you from making the changes that you want to see? Um, so I feel like like I've always been um like I love being black. Like I love being black. I could not imagine anything else. So I've always had that, you know, in me. And then when I had Linux. And just a little backstory, I didn't think. They told me I was having a girl. So I didn't learn he was a boy until I was around 30-something weeks. Mm. Two baby showers I had, girl baby showers, and then he was a boy. And I say this to say, once I learned that I was having a boy, I feel like a lot changed because a Black boy in America, I have to figure out how to change this world so that he can be able to just be him and not have to worry about people not liking him just because of the color of his skin. Like it didn't, it didn't make sense to me and I couldn't take it. So it's like, I I had to start figuring something out. And once I um, got into the director position, um, I started talking about wanting to do more anti-racism, anti-bias type of curriculum in those these types of settings. Um, because again, if he's old enough to experience it, you guys are old enough to learn it. And so I think Linux was probably like a big push for me. Thank you. Rochelle, how would you say uh, your experience has pushed you or blocked you from making some of the changes that you want to see? Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm glad that um, we talked about colorism a moment ago, because for me, being light skinned, uh, being racially ambiguous, uh, you know, showing up in a certain kind of way, um, I recognize the privilege that comes with that. And uh, the the latitude and the access that it gains me. So for me, my work in early childhood will always be centered around uh, social justice and racial justice specifically, because I know that um, I am able to push in ways that um, you know some of my peers are not able to. I'm able to get a little bit further. I'm seen and heard and interpreted in a different way. And so because of that, I have to use that, right? I have to leverage that uh, to make things better for Black teachers, Black children, uh, people of color in our schools and our programs um, generally. Um, You know, at the same time, um, it's a lot. It's um, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of battle, you know. It's a lot of seeing the worst <laughs> sides, or it, it, it's a lot of disappointment. Um, it's a lot of 
Yes. A lot of realizing that like <laughs> your your uh, kind of deepest fears um, are being confirmed, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's that experience that you have uh, with white people or sometimes other BIPOC uh, who are not black. Uh, I mean, I guess you would also have it with like a Candace Owens or Clarence Thomas or something, but like where uh, you come and like your truth and your vulnerability and um, really like seeking to do the best thing for all children and for teachers and then just kind of recognizing that uh, the same barriers of always blocked progress are still in place. Um, Even though like we got like Black Lives Matter yard signs and like there's a social media filter or whatever. Um, you know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of uh, performative mm. allyship so out there. There's a lot so of much. so um I, I, I think it's it's very much like in you know, going into this next year of pandemic and just you know, the world as it is right now, it's all, it's all right now about like learning how to like protect my peace of mind. Um and have boundaries, you know, kind of inoculate me uh, from the BS. And that means that to um, some degree, I have to, uh, some things I have to, I have to take myself out of. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I had to take myself out of that situation because it was just too taxing on my mind. I, I just, I can't, I can't put my mental health at risk to try and fight at, <laughs> You 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 get what I'm saying. Like it yeah. just, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And in the a previous discussion that I was having, uh, a different um, interview I was doing, uh, someone mentioned, you know, we can't take on that burden, right? We can't place that solely solely on our shoulders because it is, like you said, it's very taxing. It is exhausting. It takes a lot out of your spirit, and they'll suck your soul dry if you let them. And they so will. you have to be very intentional about what battles you pick and choose because yeah. all battles can't be fought and they're not worth fighting. And again, this is something that is for everything. Early childhood education just is a part of that. My best friend, she's she told me, I'm so proud of you. You always advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I told her, I don't want to anymore, though. I don't want to have to advocate for myself. It's exhausting. I want to just be able to say what I have to say and be believed. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. It's, I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is tiresome. And going back to what we were talking about, which is that in some ways, seeing these inequities, it motivates us. It pushes us to want to do more and make sure that we stay in these spaces so that we can try to support the rising generations and make sure they know who they are, right? And and see examples of people like us in these systems. But at the same time, some of these systems are so damaging that we have to make the conscious decision to step or excuse ourselves, right? We have to yeah. step out. Yeah. It's a very like it's a very fine line, you know? It's it's like it's self-preservation and at the same time like you know, in a, in a capitalist society, when you're trying to like, you know, you're trying to bring your kids up, you're trying to like get in the house, you're trying to pay off those student loans. It is like, there's no winning, right? It's like being at war with yourself 
almost all yeah. the time, you know, like, how do you, how do you walk away um, from something that is like damaging you spiritually and emotionally when to do so is going to like really, you know, put a huge roadblock in, in front of your ability to advance in your career and to make money and to change the circumstances that your family is living in. Um, and I think particularly for black women, you know, and other women of color, like it's, you have to, you have to work so much harder to get what is, is given to white women or white people that it's just, you know, I don't know. It's, it is that like war with yourself. Some of the questions that I had written for earlier, um, they were more centered around the experience that children are having, but I feel what you're saying is so much more important, right? It, which is that there is this ongoing element of, of abuse towards women of color in so many professional settings, particularly in education, because it seems to be the work that many of us end up doing and that plantation dynamic that you were mentioning where in one way they trust us with their children, but they also don't really care about what we have to say, mm -hmm. you know, that's tough. Yeah. And I mean, it's like the lack of, you know, they don't value us as professionals. And we know that um, in early childhood, for sure. And that's, you know, why they pay us like $9 an hour. Um, but we're also seeing it with teachers of older children in this pandemic and the disrespect that um, teachers have been subjected to over the last couple of years. And there's the straight up vitriol um, from parents who you know, we're not listening to our educators. We don't see them as professionals. We don't value their opinions as experts. It's like, yeah, I mean, they're just letting anybody into the schools to sub at this point is how little um, they yes. seem to think of teaching as a profession, uh, let alone when our teachers say like, no, this is legit curriculum or no, our buildings are not safe. They're not, they're not hearing our teachers because value a profession of women um, even though they're the ones in the classroom mm -hmm. somehow they don't know best we'll have to come back together again because there's still so much to unpack and there's still so much to talk about right because centering social justice and centering it's interesting that so many schools and educational facilities or institutions they want to center social justice for the content that children teach meanwhile Within these systems, people are experiencing really traumatic abuse and racism um, and white supremacy, like you're mentioning, Kendra. Uh, do either of you have any advice or feedback for people who are interested in learning more about early childhood education? Sorry, I'm thinking. Um. Uh, yeah, I would say if you're interested in it, I mean, it's it's very easy to research and it's easy to research why it is uh, beneficial for children to, you know, have some type of early childhood education. Yeah. I don't know. We might need to scratch that from the record. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, if you are a person who has young children in your life, uh, whether you're interested in becoming an early childhood teacher or not, uh, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a godparent or a foster parent or a step parent or a friend of a little child, um, you know, learning about early childhood education and how young children learn and make sense of the world and hear us and understand us and build knowledge from their interactions with us, that 
that information is valuable to all of us. You don't you don't have to be a teacher to make good use of that. Um, I mean, actually, I <laughs> I wish that when 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 a family is getting ready to welcome uh, a new baby into their family, um, that they had the opportunity to take a class about uh, child development and, and make things so much easier parenting and all of these things. Um, we just let them take little children home with no idea of how they there you go. <laughs> I mean, you got to do more to drive a car than you do to raise mm. a human being. And Someone told me that they had to fill out more paperwork to adopt their cat than to take home their child. And it's just like, what? Right. It's, it's a little, it's a little nutty. Um, I mean, I think if, you know, we as just adults um, had a kind of collective better understanding of how to engage young children, we would have a healthier generation of adults coming up. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of the amazing things about early childhood education is that the dividends are, um, exponential and, and long reaching, you know, the, um, education levels and, uh, not being incarcerated levels and not dropping out levels and, uh, how much money you'll make in your life and your physical health and your social health and your emotional health. All of these things are tied to, um, high quality early childhood experiences. So if we can all be a part of giving young children really positive and healthy, uh, and responsive, uh, childhoods, um, whether or not they're, you know, in a preschool, um, you know, that's how you grow healthy adults. Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass said, it's easier to grow healthy children than repair broken men. Mm. That effects. And it's absolutely true, you know. Um, so, you know, I think uh, if everybody, you know, just spend a little bit more time understanding kids and um, how to be amazing to them. It, it would make a big difference, you know, just in terms of the world that we live in and how, how the, the adults were raising children to be. Last question. Take your time thinking about it. Describe your ideal early childhood education setting. I might not have to think about it because I think about this all the time. My ideal early childhood setting would be like, kind of rooted, like, like, even if you had a chain, like really like rooted in and nestled in communities so that, um, you know, the program is like connected to the local resources and, you know, the children know, you know, the, the mail carrier who brings the mail every day and, you know, the neighborhood park and like all the dogs behind the fences on your walk. Like, um, it just feels like a very like intrinsic part of the community and, uh, it would practice continuity of care, which means the teacher would stay with a group of children, um, from the time they were infants until they were in pre-K and you would have this cohort, uh, where the children know each other well and the teachers you know the children and the families well and it just feels very um kind of much like a family vibe and you know families would be encouraged to um contribute you know whatever is important to themselves and their families so that uh school feels like home away from home for children so you know they see things that reflect their culture and their backgrounds and you know families in and out and um just very like focused on children's holistic 
development and family-oriented and community-oriented uh, with a strong social justice curriculum. Um, and I, I, told, I fantasize about this all the time. I want that one. I've never really thought about it, but what she said was like perfect. I want that. And I I especially like the curriculum part Um, and just not it being white centric. Like, let's move away from that and start actually teaching what the world actually is. Kendra and Rochelle, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences um, and your wisdom, your expertise with me and us today. And I hope that we get a chance to touch bases again because there's so much evolving in early childhood education, especially with COVID. And I think that this discussion will shift quite a bit if we were to have it a year from now. Let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Maria.